Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, we continue to follow the ArriveCan app story as new information shows the company behind the boondoggle has billed taxpayers $239 million since 2015. And Richmond City Council votes in favor of a drug consumption site. We speak to the driving force behind the change. And Vancouver developer Ryan Beattie joins us to discuss how a small family-run firm goes on to become one of the largest development companies in Canada. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today, the Minister of Public Services, Jean-Yves Duclos, said all federal government contracts with GC Strategies, that's the company at the centre of a blistering Auditor General's report about the federal government's Arrive Can app, were suspended on November of 2023 out of caution. Now, the app cost taxpayers about $60 million. Now, that's a price tag that's a lot higher than the initial estimates of about $80,000. But even that $60 million figure is, remember, just an estimate, estimate because... See, CBSA, the Canadian Border Services, record-keeping was so poor in this case. It was the main topic of discussion during question period. Uh, today in Ottawa, here is Conservative Party leader Pierre Polyev. Prime Minister's arrive scam is now flailing out of control. Today, revelations from a Joël Denis Bellevance that one arrive scan company received a quarter of a billion dollars in contracts. Let's get this straight. It's a company with four employees headquartered in the basement of a tiny cottage. They got IT contracts even though they admit they do no IT work. A quarter of a billion dollars? WTF. The government rightly did everything it could to keep Canadians safe and uh, and keep them protected. But of course, even in the most uh, trying times, all the rules need to be followed. In this case, the Auditor General has uh, highlighted some very concerning questions that need to be answered. And that's why uh, we're expecting and supporting all relevant authorities uh, to follow up on uh, these irregular contracting and this uh, perhaps breaking of the rules. That is Conservative Party leader Pierre Polyev and, of course, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Well, joining us now to talk a little bit about ArriveCan and, of course, a potential pharmacare deal uh, with the Liberals is NDP leader Jagmeet Singh. Mr. Singh, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. I was watching Question Period today. Uh, lots of questions, of course, on the ArriveCan app. Uh, your thoughts on this? I'm still a, just befuddled when a, uh, you know, a, a, an app that was supposed to cost less than six figures, and now we're looking at $60 million. What should be occurring moving forward? Well, well first of all, this is a very serious scandal, and, and it goes deeper than just the ArriveCan app. It looks like the company behind this GC strategies received over $250 million of contracts at the federal level. So that's a big question, how they got so much money. And the RiveCan app, particularly, as you pointed out, that's a significant sum of money, far more than needed to build what, what was, should have cost a lot less. It's an app that no one really uses, and it doesn't work, and they can't even properly account for where the money is spent. This is the role of government to ensure that these types of projects are properly sourced, that the proper steps are taken, and that the costs are kept within what is reasonable. That's why the Auditor General's report that found value for money, that this was not good value for money. And it's another example of the Liberals being out of touch. While people are really squeezing their budgets, and I'm sure you've heard people tell you that they've got to figure out how to pay their rent or their mortgage and buy their groceries, people are feeling squeezed in their budgets to see the government waste $60 million like that is really out of touch and really hurt. Um, some have said, look, uh, we were the height of COVID. There was a lot of pressure to 
from Canadians who wanted to get across the border uh, for business and to see loved ones. Uh, and that was part of the reasoning why this happened. Do you buy that excuse? Well, I understand that there were significant challenges around COVID, and I think that's a reasonable thing. But it doesn't mean that the proper steps aren't followed. It doesn't mean that we don't have checks and balances in place to see how we're spending our money. There could have been things that we tried initiatives that maybe didn't work or weren't necessary, but that doesn't explain the $60 million being spent and really no clear accountability. What makes matters even worse is the price tag and the fact that there's not enough accounting of where all that money went. There's not even clarity around that. So this is an extreme example that is not justified by, yes, very serious times during the pandemic where we didn't know what was exactly going on and then things were happening very rapidly. That doesn't excuse the Liberal government from this mismanagement. And you're, you're in full support of the RCMP looking into this and poking around? Oh, there's no doubt. Every uh, mechanism that we have around accountability should be exhausted. If there is grounds for charges to be laid, that is something that should be explored. It should be about ensuring that Canadians can trust that any wrongdoing is investigated and those that are found responsible are held to account. And this is what we expect proper procedures followed, proper investigation after the fact, and we'll be pushing for that. Uh, let's touch on another issue, and that is pharmacare. Uh, and uh, it's been getting some in, uh, you know, some interest, and people have been following it, of course, but so much of the time has been eaten up by this ArriveCan conversation. Uh, where are we in regards to the pharmacare negotiations between uh, the Liberals uh, and, and your party? So we... Included in what we forced the government to do, a list of number of things. One of the major things you folks know about is dental care. We fought hard to include dental care, mm-hmm. something that the Liberals and Conservatives voted against. Pierre Polyev continues to vote against having dental care for kids and seniors, though he himself has had taxpayer-funded dental care for most of his adult life, but doesn't want, his, doesn't want seniors to get the same thing. Uh, so we forced that through, and one of the things that we also forced in the in our negotiations, we forced Liberals to commit to bringing in legislation to lay the foundation for pharmacare. What we want, basically, is for the seniors that I talk to that tell me they have to choose between buying their groceries or buying medication they need to stay healthy. They have to actually make a serious choice. Do I cut back on my groceries so I can afford my medication, or do I cut back on my medication? A senior should not have to make that choice in our country, and far too many do. So what we proposed is a plan that lays the foundation so that senior does not have to worry about that. What the Liberals want to do is put forward a plan that appeases the big pharma industry as well as big insurance companies. We disagree. We think that that should not be the, that should not be the consideration. It should be about what's in the best interest of everyday folks. So that's our sticking point, and we've been saying, I said directly to the Prime Minister, we expect you to fulfill your promise, your commitment, by the 1st of March. That's the deadline that we gave. If not, there will be consequences. Uh, and before we get to those consequences, uh, I, I want to clarify here, uh, does the government want just a select few categories or, or, or is this just a, a fight over whether or not this is going to be a more robust national drug plan? This is, yeah, this is really a fight over what type of plan we want to put down in terms of the foundation. And we have been clear from the beginning that we didn't expect a big sum of money or any money in the budget. We wanted the legal framework to be started. This was recommended by the commission that the government themselves put in motion. That commission under Dr. Hoskins recommended one of the first steps if we wanted to move forward with pharmacare would be to have legislation passed that would create the framework then 
pharmacare that could actually, the next steps could be taken. So we're following that recommendation that was literally written into the government's own commission report. That's what we've been fighting about. And the government's been dragging their feet on that. They don't want to commit to what all the experts say the best plan is, which is something that covers everybody and that we use the bulk buying, buying power of our country to be able to negotiate the best prices. What they want to do is something that the insurance companies and the pharma companies want, which is fill in the blanks, cover some, but not all. We have found and evidence have confirmed that this is the most expensive way possible, the least efficient, the least cost effective, and something that is not going to create any savings for provinces or for the federal government. And we think it's the wrong way to go. What do you say to the argument that the government's making is that we may not be able to afford this pharmacare program at this moment. The costs are roughly, uh, once fully implemented, would be about $40 billion a year. That is correct, the, the full cost, the initial investment. We're not asking for that. So the Liberals' argument is really, uh, frankly, nonsensical. It's not our request that it has to be. The money does not be budgeted right now. We're not asking even for the program to be implemented. We're just saying, let's start the ball going forward. Your own government report said to move it down the road. The first step is legislation. Let's start with that. The next step is let's put out a list of what medication will be covered. The next step after that is what would be the bulk purchasing plan? How would we purchase and negotiate these prices for these medications in bulk? That was the plan that we negotiated for, which is what the commission report said would get us down the path to then finally the final step, which would be start negotiating with provinces to move forward. That's what we required, which is a no money ask. And the liberals are making this argument that, that uh, it's too costly. Well, we're not actually asking for the money right now. So I don't know how they can make that argument when that does not actually hold up with what we fought for. And to me, I think it's an excuse. Really, in the past nine months, we've got, been confirmed, it's on the public record, they met with the Liberal government, met with the pharmaceutical lobbyists, and that's all registered over 150 times in nine months, which is a significant increase over past numbers. So it looks like they've received lots of pressure and it's that pressure that has discouraged them from moving forward. That's what we think this is about. A uh, final question to you. You said there would be consequences, uh, whether it's PharmaCare or even the RiveCan app. Um, you have a confidence in supply agreement with um, the Liberal minority government. Uh, without you, uh, they would not be able to govern until the end of their mandate in 2025. Um, are you willing to pull your support for uh, the Liberal minority government if this PharmaCare deal isn't signed? Well, we've, we flipped that and said, uh, if the Liberals break their promise, they would be breaking the deal. If they break the deal, yeah, then there will not be a deal, and they cannot count on our votes. And we'd go back to a vote-by-vote vote situation, which is what we had in the minority government during the pandemic, where we decided to vote or not to vote with the government based on the votes in front of us. So that's what we've said. If they break their agreement, then the agreement will be broken, meaning there's no more guarantee that we can that we will uh, support any bill or vote for any motion in Parliament. So the deal is there, the date is there, March 1st is the deadline, and I guess we'll learn uh, in and around that time if uh, uh, the government is able to meet uh, that deadline. Um, Mr. Singh, thank you so much for your time, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, veteran BC politician Mike DeYoung has announced he'll leave the legislature after a 30-year career in government and in opposition. Mr. DeYoung was first elected as a BC Liberal uh, MLA in a Fraser Valley by-election in 1992. 
four. Beating out Grace McCarthy, DeYoung says the time has come to leave the provincial legislature, but it may not be the end of his days in politics. DeYoung says he is considering seeking nomination to run the upcoming federal election for the federal conservatives. Here is uh, Mike DeYoung uh, making that announcement earlier today. What's next? Uh, lots of uh, uh, speculation about that, and I'll repeat what I have uh, said to some of you uh, uh, previously. Uh, it is true that I have been approached by the Conservative Party of Canada and uh, many members of the Conservative Party of Canada uh, with a request to uh, uh, run as a candidate in the next uh, federal election for that party. Uh, it's also true that I'm considering that, uh, but uh, I, I want to emphasize this, I haven't made uh, decisions, so a final decision, so I'm not withholding that decision. That was uh, Mike DeYoung speaking earlier today. Uh, he's held several cabinet positions uh, during his time uh, in the legislature. Uh, during the BC Liberal governments, he's been a finance minister, an attorney general, Aboriginal relations and reconciliation minister, labor and uh, force as well, and served as a government house leader. Uh, so it's a lot he's done, and he is elected eight separate times. Now joining me now to talk a little bit about the departure of Mike DeYoung from the riding of Abbotsford West is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Good afternoon, Richard. Good afternoon, Joss. So what in, it, for you, what does this mean? Is this a question of guys that I'm throwing in the towel, I'm tired of opposition, uh, or is there something bigger here in your mind? Yeah, it's a fascinating thing. I asked Mike DeYoung basically that, and he clearly has more he wants to give. Either that's going to be in federal politics as he grapples whether he wants to take a shot at winning a nomination and then winning an election and then traveling to Ottawa, or whether he wants to, you know, try his hand in the private sector. He, he joked he hasn't been in the private sector in 30 years. <laughs> it's been a long career in politics. He was a young man back then. Uh, he just turned 60 now, so he's in a much different place. But he wouldn't take the bait when asked about this idea that we are seeing in some cases, an unprecedented amount of MLAs leaving from a political party. So you look back to the last provincial election, and the BC Liberals then won 28 seats. Of those 28 seats, there are going to be 11 of them where incumbents are not running again for BC United. That's more than 40%. That is a lot. And that can be seen as a two-edged sword. The one side, the positive spin for BC United is this allows them finally to rejuvenate, to show people that there's something new. Mike DeYoung, for many people, represented the BC Liberals, the 16 years of rule. He served, as you described, in very senior portfolios for both Gordon Campbell and Christy Clark, from finance to health to public safety to attorney general. The other side of it is that this is a party where people are jumping ship. They don't want to be the last one on the deck of the Titanic before it sinks. And it will be up to, you know, voters to decide, political analysts to discuss. I don't get the sense that DeYoung feels all hope is lost for this center-right coalition, but clearly 
it was time for him, he believes, to move on and not be part of whatever this next phase is with Kevin Falcon leading the party. Yeah, it's interesting that he was the the, the new generation at that time when he elected 1994, uh, spoke to revitalization. Uh, and now, and many, 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 many would argue yeah. uh, the, that free enterprise movement is now in that same predicament again, dealing with the change, dealing with needed change. Question is, can it change enough, especially when right now in the polls, they're, they're in third place, not even second place as the official opposition as the Conservative Party has done better. Now, one of the things I found interesting, um, you know, Mr. De Jong uh, has done a lot of work in his writing, of course, uh, has always had a sizable South Asian population. He's been very close in, with the community and travels to India on a semi-regular basis. But when I looked at the demographics of Abbotsford West, it's now 53% visible minority. It is not the writing that he started with, certainly, uh, in 1994. And, and uh, you know, sometimes you can argue that that writing could be Mike De Jong writing. It doesn't necessarily mean it's a BC yep. United writing. I mean, that's the other thing you got to look at is with immigration over the many years, but especially the last five years, I mean, these some of these writings in the urban areas, especially out in Abbotsford, they have changed in a significant way, even in the last four years. And he really reflects you know, some of this change. So you mentioned when he first won in 1994, he defeated Grace McCarthy uh, in a by-election, a legend in this province. And that largely ended the Social Credit Party. And he may be bowing out here as we see BC Liberal, BC United ending as the, you know, voice of the Free Enterprise Coalition. And then you describe the changing demographics because historically that stretch has been BC Liberal, BC United, uh, Social Credit, uh, Heartland. And that is changing. And and it's hard when you have an incumbent whose name is so intrinsically linked for people to that job, what happens when he leaves? You know, Andrew Weaver, and this is, you know, his legacy was nowhere long as near as that. He won decisively here in Victoria in Oak Bay, Gordon Head. And when he left, I was looking at the numbers today, the NDP with Murray Rankin won that writing decisively. And it was clear at that point that that was an Andrew Weaver writing and not a Green writing. Mm-hmm. Well, we don't know. We don't know the answer to that in Abbotsford West until those voters show up uh, to vote before that October 19th election. And that's going to be the challenge for BC United. My understanding, I've heard that they have a star lined up to run in that seat they knew this was coming and had planned it accordingly uh, and have someone who is well-known in the community and has had political success in the community in the past. And that will be helpful. But they're no Mike DeYoung. No matter who it is, they're not Mike DeYoung. And filling that gap is going to be the challenge for the party as they address all the other challenges you and I have spent so much time talking about. Who's Kevin Falcon? Who is BC United? What do they stand for? What happens with the Conservatives splitting vote on the right? Because that's going to happen there as well. And the NDP picked up seats in Abbotsford and Chilliwack and Langley in the last election, and they're going to be poised to do so again, and they're going to have this riding now circled that Mike DeYoung is in the incumbent. Well, you know, when the party's sitting at about 17% and the BC Conservatives are sitting at 25%, there's the, there's the split right there, and you can see an NDP uh, candidate coming down the middle. I'm not saying it's going to necessarily happen, but certainly when you look at uh, at the political landscape right now and what the polling is showing, boy, it's going to be a tough one uh, for BC United. It's not guaranteed uh, at all. So we'll be watching that riding certainly on election night, that's for sure. Richard, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, and thank you to Mike DeYoung. He has been a fantastic guy to cover. <laughs> He's one of the great politicians 
and you know today's conference is really as much about political as it was about storytelling and, and reminiscing. So uh, he'll be missed, uh, at least at the provincial level, because of the impact that he's had on our province. Yeah, there's no doubt. Uh, a talented parliamentarian, a gifted orator, uh, and he has uh, given 30 years of his uh, of his professional career to uh, politics in our province in a variety of portfolios. And I must say, was a former colleague of mine and always been very helpful and enjoyed my <laughs> time with Mike as well. Richard, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks, Jess. Richmond City Council last night voted 7-2 to approve a motion that asked health authorities to explore the possibility of a supervised drug consumption site at the city's hospital. Uh, Councillor Cash Heed's motion drew heated protests at Richmond City Hall over the last couple of days with uh, some residents criticizing the lack of public consultation. It was a pretty rancorous uh, lot last night as well. Take a listen. Now, as I said, uh, it was uh, the, the the motion itself was approved seven to two. Joining me now to talk a little bit about what transpired over the last couple of days is Kashid, who is a Richmond City Councilor, former West Vancouver Police Chief, and Solicitor General for the Province of British Columbia as well. Cash, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So, first and foremost, uh, were you expecting that type of pushback when uh, initially you had introduced this conversation along with one of your other colleagues to to have this conversation about the supervised drug consumption site? Well, I expected some pushback uh, from the community, but what was different from my previous experience, which you were in the media when we dealt with the one in Vancouver, Mm -hmm. we had the pushback, but we had respectful pushback from the community, the people that didn't agree with what was going on. What I was surprised of how disrespectful the pushback came from the people in Richmond personally directed towards me. In what way? There's uh, letters, uh, uh, threats to my uh, family members, threats to uh, sending people to my house, uh, you know, those vile type of uh, correspondence that Mm -hmm. you would get at uh, various times. But making it so personal directed towards me was the alarming part because I think a lot of people really misunderstood what we're trying to do for our vulnerable people that live in Richmond, B.C. Now, every community deals with the issue of drugs, especially toxic drugs. But in the case of Richmond, some have said, look, people do die and have died behind closed doors, 26 deaths uh, out of a province with well over 2,500 deaths in 2023. uh, Richmond at its core represents a very small portion of people who are dying of drugs. Perhaps this isn't the right place or the right time to be having this conversation. What do you say to those people? Well, every community in British Columbia should have something where they can take as a contact point to get people out of the crisis that they're in. Every community across British Columbia has people that have this acute addiction problem. When you look at 26 deaths, I can't believe how dismissive some people are when they say it's only 1% of the total deaths in British Columbia. Look at the opioid crisis since 2016. 40,000 people have died in Canada because of the poison drug supply related to the fentanyl crisis we're going through. Even if there's one family we can save from going through the tragedy of losing a loved one, uh, we'd be successful. So I don't buy that dismissive attitude, whether it's from people for their own political benefit or people that just don't understand what we're trying to do to get these people into a contact service, to get them along the continuum of care, to get them into a better life. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, you talk about people not understanding 
what uh, a supervised drug consumption site looks like, and it would be at the Richmond Hospital, uh, and that's been part of the conversation, some have said. Can you just walk me through and what you envision, and especially for our audience, what a site would look like at the hospital if, 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 if it were, one were to open in Richmond? Well, right now, all of our harm reduction supplies that are available to the addicted population, the acute addicted population, are at Richmond General Hospital. So it's already available for them. They can go there for their needles. They can go there for whatever apparatus they need for their drug consumption. What we're looking at is simply within a few blocks of the hospital, we've had several complaints of people that are not only overdosing in the impact it has on emergency services. The fact that people are complaining because they're out in the alcoves, they're in the laneways, they're at their doorsteps, and they're consuming their particular illicit drugs because, as you know, with what the province has done here, they decrim 2.5 grams of it, so they're allowed to have it out in public. They're consuming it out in public, and people are complaining about that. So we want to make sure that we have somewhere where we can actually send them if the complaints come in so our police officers can direct them there, so our outreach work can direct them to that location. Our emergency health services can direct them to that location. At the end of the day, what, what we would like to see is these people that do come into these uh, these sites, and there's 39 of these approved throughout Canada under 56.1 of the CDSA, uh, which governs our illicit drugs here. And we would have it staffed by health practitioners like the other 39 are. So these are people that are expert in the uh, field that they can come in, develop a relationship, have that contact and be able to move them within the system because you're not going to be able to treat a dead person. So what we want to do is make sure we have that continuum of care started, the initial contact, we can get them into detox, we can get them into the different levels of treatments as primary, secondary, tertiary, and along in that continuum of care so we can get them out of the crisis that they're facing because of their acute drug addiction. Mm-hmm. Now, one of your colleagues, Councillor Alexa Liu, uh, was on Jill Bennett show earlier today, and she said she switched her vote to go against the motion. Now, Chakao, another city councillor, has opposed the motion right from the start. Um, uh, Ms. Liu originally supported the motion to move forward and have the conversation, which began on Monday and, and ended yesterday with the vote, which went 7-2. But she changed her mind. Uh, she was on Jill's show, as I said. Let's take a listen to what she had to say. We had already been told we're not getting it. So it's a lot of work for nothing. It's extremely polarizing for people because um, a lot of us have been watching the news, watching what's happening in Yale Town, and thinking that these are the same thing. Supposedly, a safe consumption site is different from an overdose prevention site. Most people don't know the difference between that. And the way the motion was written is it made it sound like it was already a fait accompli that we were going to get this. So not just that staff was going to study it, but that it was essentially going forward. And then the supporting motions for it were, how are we going to educate the public? How are we going to make this work with police and other stakeholders? It seemed very polarizing right from the outset. And then it also didn't really create an avenue for what happens if we don't get it. In your mind, what uh, Council Liu has explained there, uh, do you... by what she is saying, but more importantly, or do you think it was just a case also of too much pressure from the community saying we really don't want to see it? I think there was a, there was a, I think 18,000 people signed a petition saying you, they don't want to see it. I mean, what makes you, th- give me your sense of why you think Alexa Liu changed her mind. She's perpetuating the device, divisive politics that are occurring here in Richmond right now, and that's so unfortunate. Yes, Shakao, he's been promoting this, he's been coming up with his own data, but at least 
least he had his position from the outset. Alexa Liu is looking for which way, you know, the political wave is actually going, where she can get the best benefit for herself. She is not doing what's right for people in Richmond. She had three weeks to educate herself. As a matter of fact, I corrected her several times and others on what a harm reduction site is compared to a supervised consumption site. So clearly she didn't understand it and clearly she didn't understand the motion because the motion has six points. Five of those points are related to engagement. Engagement with the levels of government, engagement with the health authority, engagement with the community, with the law enforcement officials, the health care providers, all of that. She didn't just understand. She, in my humble opinion, changed her vote for her own political aspirations. Uh, my guest is Cash Heed. He is a Richmond City Councillor who brought forward the motion uh, to uh, explore the possibility of supervised drug consumption site. Not a lot of folks know about it, but it is already in its early stages very successful. It's called MEND and TEND. It is a pilot program created by the uh, Providence Health Care, and it treats wounds of downtown Eastside residents. Joining me to talk a little bit about MEND and TEND is Aggie Black, a registered nurse, research leader, and co-leader for the MEND and TEND initiative. Uh, Aggie, thank you for joining us. Happy to be here, Jazz. So walk me through, how did the idea come about uh, and this desire to, to provide this kind of service in the downtown east side? Well, fundamentally, it started when a colleague and I realized every day on our way to work, we're passing people who are unhoused, who have visible wounds, and we realized the services currently available are not reaching those people. And around that same time, we had the opportunity to pitch an idea at a Providence research event where they wanted innovative approaches to wound care. And we pitched this idea of what if we brought low barrier wound care services right to people in the downtown east side, no appointments required, a registered nurse on scene to at least provide basic wound care. And that's how we started. So what kind of wounds do you see uh, when you're working down there? We see a little bit of everything. We've seen, um, I don't work there. I'm one of the organizers of it, but mm-hmm. we have this a couple of wonderful nurses, a registered nurse and a licensed practical nurse who both work there. And Anna, uh, one of her recent patients was a woman with second degree burns because her, she was, lives in a tent and her tent caught on fire. And she hadn't was referred to a burn center, but her life was very chaotic. She didn't have transportation. So instead, she showed up at Mendentend, and Anna was able to get her patched up and put dressings on the wound and continue following her. Um, so people like that. There's also many, many people with problems with their feet because they live outside. They don't have good-fitting shoes or clean socks. So she does lots and lots of foot wounds. Um, why do you think our system is able to uh, address these very things that you've talked about and the fact that you know you have to find something innovative like this uh, to actually deal with frontline challenges like that? And that's an excellent question. A lot of this, I believe fundamentally is people the people that that Anna, our nurse is seeing are people who have mental health challenges, substance use issues, live in poverty, they're afraid that when they come into the regular health care system, they will be disrespected because in the past, 
in their interactions, they've been judged. These are what they tell me. They've been judged because they smell bad because or afraid of being judged because they don't live where they have access to a shower or they're afraid of being judged because they're substance users or they're afraid of being judged because they you know, can't present themselves properly like, like what they think patients should be presenting. So they avoid mainstream health care. Some of them have, we had a patient who had not seen a primary care provider for 20 years. But because this nurse came to her in a safe, what the patient can, or client considered a safe environment, she was willing to have her wound looked at by this nurse mm. and treated. So I think we have to work to build trust between people who face these sort of fundamental life challenges and the healthcare system. And I think the interim fix is to provide really low barrier care, which is what Mendenton is trying to do. Now you're doing this, I believe, twice uh, twice a week, and you've already, uh, since the fall, uh, have helped over, I think, 280 plus people. Um, is there any, uh, are there any plans to perhaps expand the program? Yes, we, we're working closely with our colleagues at Vancouver Coastal Health, and they have a similar drop-in wound service at an overdose prevention site a few blocks away. They operate all the days that we don't operate. So we, we're sharing evaluation data with them. We're collaborating with them, and we intentionally chose dates that, that um, are the days they aren't open so that we can, if patients need a dressing change every day, we can say, please go to this other clinic, which is also drop-in, low barrier, and the sa- they do the same for us. So, I mean, I would love to see us work ourselves out of a job. I would love to see us get each of these clients um, successfully attached to primary hair cl- primary care clinics. I'd love to see them regain trust in the healthcare system enough to attend primary care clinics. This is meant to be stopgap until we can get people successfully attached. But unfortunately, that's not going to happen immediately. So for now, we hope that we'll at least be able to continue care because two days a week we see people um, and there's there's no end to people that want to be seen in the clinic. When you, uh, when, when the original idea came, who do you present this idea to? This was Providence Research is the research arm of Providence Healthcare. And once a year they do this sort of innovative thing called skunk works. It's sort of a funny name, but <laughs> you come in and pitch an idea and then you spend a day and a half working with a team to refine the idea. And then you pitch it to a group of people who have funding to offer. And, um, one of the judges said, that's such an interesting idea. I'll give you funding for a year. Now, part of the reason for that is these folks often end up in the emergency department when their wounds are so bad that they're essentially life-threatening and really need IV antibiotics. So people who, um, you know, who are watching the cost of the healthcare system realize that it's much less expensive to put a nurse in the downtown east side to treat wounds than it is to wait till those people are so ill that they end up in the emergency department taking lots of time. That's the mo- one of the most expensive places to get care mm-hmm. is emergency. And then sometimes they have to be admitted. Sometimes they have amputations and they spend weeks and months in acute care at one of our hospitals. So we want to get upstream, treat them where they are, help build trust in the healthcare system, 
and avoid some of those super, super expensive things like emergency department visits, ICU after a a leg amputation, things like that. Are there similar programs in other major cities in British uh, or in Canada, uh, similar to what you're doing here? We haven't been able to find any. We started ours right around the same time Vancouver Coastal Health started theirs, and we hadn't even known theirs existed. We kind of did a little environmental scan to see, is anybody else doing this? Because we didn't want to duplicate, and we couldn't see that anyone else was. And then we met some nurses at Vancouver Coastal Health who were just about to open theirs. So that's been great because we can share ideas and um you know, see what, what's working for them and borrow it, and they do the same. Well, it, is, it sounds like a fabulous program, and as I said, started in the in the fall of last year, and and uh, already uh, uh, they've already cared for 255 people since it opened last fall, as I said. Aggie, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. You're welcome, Jazz. Well, Lower Mainland developer BD Development uh, marking its 70th anniversary this month by highlighting its Built for Good Social Responsibility pledge. Uh, BD was founded on February 10th, 1954 by Keith Beattie with initial focus on building single-family homes. Now, originally, uh, BD Construction uh, focused on uh, those homes, uh, and you get this, the cost of those homes uh, was $12,000 at that time back in the 1950s. Now, Keith Beatty was also involved in building PE prize homes in the 1960s and eventually got into industrial construction as well. Uh, Mr. Beatty founded the company on big picture values, uncom- uncompromising quality, outstanding service, and loyal relationships. Now, today, Beatty has three separate brands Beatty Industrial, with more than 35 million square feet of completed industrial space across BC, uh, Alberta, Ontario, and Nevada. Beatty Living, its residential arm with more than 11,000 homes in planning and development, and Beatty Capital, the company private investment firm. Now, in June of 2016, Mr. Beatty Sr. was presented an honorary doctorate by SFU. He was asked one question. What is the key value to being successful in business and in life? Take a listen. Well, the main thing is honest. You've got to be honest for sure and never lie. That's one thing. Another thing is to make sure that you look after the buildings. If we make a mistake or something... We have to eat it. We're just not going to try to get somebody else to pay for it. That was, of course, Mr. Keith Beatty. Joining us now is his son, Ryan Beatty, president of Beatty Development. Ryan, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. What goes to your mind when you hear your dad's voice uh, talking about uh, success in business and in life? That is awesome. I don't think I've ever heard that clip. I was there for it. And, you know, if you were to ask me, what are the values that have really driven the company from the beginning? It would be just that. So to hear him say it, you know, in his own words... It uh, really strikes a chord, and you know it, it's true. He he and, and you know imparted those values on me at a young age, and I can tell you, uh, he he kind of scared me a little bit. He was he was a really driven, intimidating force, but a wonderful, wonderful dad. I didn't lie to him once. Like some people, you know, they lie to their parents. Too. Yeah, <laughs> I was I was afraid of him. I, I always told the truth, and he'd say to me, Ryan, if you tell me something. Unless you're 100% sure, say you're 90% sure, 80% sure, but if you tell me something, I need to be able to take it to the bank. I need you to be, you know, 100% if you're saying, and to this day, I try to follow that ethos. So it's wonderful to, to hear what he had to say. What was it like? Uh, because, you know, I always think someone like that who starts uh, small with single family homes and building this business, uh, the kids see it. 
they see dad, mom, the parents building this business. What was that like uh, growing up with, with, a, with a Keith Beatty driving business like that? Yeah, you know, um, so I was born in 1968. And around that time, he, uh, he, he basically was essentially broke because his accountant had embezzled from him twice, not once. He didn't yes. fire him after the, after the first time. But, um, you know, growing up, like Sundays would be going to, to job sites. The company was the most important thing to him. Really, is like the company and my mom and Canucks hockey, you know, the, <laughs> those three. But a little bit, uh, you know, a little, little OCD. He loved the company. He never called it my company. He called it the company just because, you know, it involved so many other people, stakeholders, employees, or whatever. So he was so proud. But this was, he was so driven, so determined. And he'd come home at, you know, six thirty, seven o'clock at night. And I, I would be, you know, depending on how his day was, you know, whether I talked to him or not, I kind of shy away. But you know, I remember vividly in 81, 82, and interest rates are 17, 18, 19 percent. Mm-hmm. And the stress on his face, like, could he, you know, maybe lose his company? So um, it, the, the the topic of conversation uh, at dinner was always, you know, work mm-hmm. and, and hockey. So, <laughs> and hockey. Yeah. I remember uh, as I was researching your dad uh, and you were mentioning that uh, the accountant had embezzled some money. He also ended up paying his his trades folks with interest, didn't he? After he, did. he paid everybody, he he flipped a coin. Heads was supposed to be bankrupt, and tails not. It was heads. He said, "Forget it. I'm not going bankrupt." He went to all the trades. He went to the Royal Bank, and he paid everybody back in time because you know that was the right thing to do. He he lived by a certain set of principles and values that were really uncompromising mm-hmm. and um, consistent. Um, what drove your dad to be your dad. I mean, some people are, are, are quite happy building two or three homes a year. It's a comfortable living. Uh, you're not getting rich, but you've got a living. And But then there are those, like your dad, uh, Jimmy Patterson would be another person. They continue to build and build and build. What is it you think within your dad that continued to drive him? I think he, he loved um, the process of, of creating and building, he was very curious. He always liked to, to he was building model airplanes when he was a little kid. He liked mm. to create and, and he was very curious as to how things worked. Um, so I, I think that was a major factor. Uh, his employees and the people around him, they meant so much to him. We, you know, had, we've, we measure in decades and not years. We had some employees at over 50 years, some at 40, keeping the machine going, keeping work. He loved the idea, the notion of, of work. We'd go to a site and look at all the people working and they're feeding their families. So he the perpetuating sort of a building of that. And, uh, and it was a, a huge driver for, for him. And it wasn't, you know, it's cliche to say, it wasn't really about the money. He lived, uh, and my mom, a very relatively, a simple life. My mom still lives in the same house uh, that uh, you know, we moved into in 1969, 55 years ago. The carpet in the basement on one side is the original carpet. <laughs> there was one renovation. He hated waste. He had spent hated spending money on something unless it was necessary because he he grew up during the depression. He knew sort of what it was like to not have, mm-hmm. um, but he was very driven. That's for sure. Um, your education in the company. When did it start, and what was it like? Yeah. I think the education probably started when I was four or five years old, if you, if you look back on it. Um, I did my undergraduate at uh, SFU. I was going to be a chartered accountant. I was going down that path. I just thought, you know, 
my dad at the time was 65. I was a bit concerned about his health. Thank goodness he lived in 91. My brother was already in the business. I thought I should come back, uh, maybe join the company sooner. So I did my MBA at UBC and I really started in 1993. So it was just a little over 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did he take you, I mean, you said you, you talked about, you'd see him at the sites. Did he actually have you work on sites as well? No, I didn't. I didn't work on, on site a little bit, but not, um, not a lot. But we, we, we talked shop all the time, even through high school. He would ask me advice on things. And what are you asking me? I'm 16 years old. <laughs> you know, and I, I would work on sites. I do land landscaping and that kind of thing. But I think he was in a subtle way kind of, you know, grooming me because, you know, this, he called it his baby. He loved this so much. And to have me come on, I worked with my brother, uh, Colin, from 1993 to 1999. Colin left 99, 2000, and I retired and and I became president in uh, 2001. Mm. Um your dad passed away in, in 2017, and you, as you said, in his early 90s. Uh, usually when you have somebody who has built the business and it's passed on to the next generation, it's a challenge. It's a challenge. First of all, there's a lot of pressure on the next generation in regards to sustaining what's been built, and there's been a myriad of books written on that. Um, at the same time, for those people who are taking over, you still have to – you know. Speak to whoever built the business, but also continue to infuse that culture. Walk me through some of the challenges, or, or maybe not challenges, but how your mindset works in regards to making sure the leadership has changed in regards to it's the sun. Yeah. Um, but keeping that culture sort of seamless through the, through the organization. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, this is almost like a master class of succession and um, – and just he just did it intuitively. Again, he loved the company so much. He he gave me a lot of authority in my my mid twenties, late twenties. I came in with a bundle of energy, took his model, his vertically integrated development model, and wanted to scale it up. And he let me go. He let me let me run. There was only one time he overruled me in like nineteen ninety seven. He was in Hawaii. He said we got to buy this, and he said no. It turned out that we should have. Um, full credit to him. Yeah, I think he had a lot of confidence in me. He was a big fan of mine, but he gave that runway, allowed me to do it, which is incredible considering someone who started this business. It meant so much to him. Mm-hmm. Many people, you know, have a hard time letting go of that control. Yet he did it. He worked on the property management, leasing side of the business, but gave me uh, tons of runway. Um, well, the only area where we really disagreed and boy, he was, he was amazing, was the office. We were on Kingsway in Burnaby for 51 years, 1956 to 2007. I said, mm-hmm. Dad, I'm trying to grow this business. We've got to move. Like There's seven parking spots. There's 40 people. There's rats. Like We've got to move. He goes, okay. After about two years of battle, he goes, I'll move only if the office that we create at a building we own on, on Gilmore, only if the office is the exact replica of my current office because he couldn't handle any kind of change. He said, done, we can do that. He went away to Hawaii for eight weeks. He came back. He toured around. Does he like it? Does he like it? He loved it. And he sent me an email. This is this tells you about him. Three days later, he sent me an email saying, I'm sorry I argued with you about the office location for so long. I just was reluctant to change. This is even better. It's closer to the house, what have you. So, you know, devoid of ego, he would always say, like, if he's made a mistake, he's, he would own it. Yeah. And uh, a lot of good examples to learn from a great role model that um, I got to spend time with. Ryan, let's talk a little bit about just housing today uh, in Vancouver. We constantly hear about the housing crisis. Uh, yesterday I had the housing minister on. I talked to the premier not too long ago on this show as well. Where do you think we need to go? 
uh, from from how you see the world in regards to making housing maybe affordable affordable isn't the right word but at least increasing supply in a significant way that people have an opportunity to have a roof over their head what would you like to see done if you could be king for a day yeah it's uh been a long time coming we've been sort of yelling and screaming about this for years but i think on the positive side there has been i think in the last couple years it feels like there's a consensus forming that okay we need to all hands on deck, you know, between government, private sector, not-for-profits, there seems to be something happening, which I'm quite encouraged about because housing has become so out of reach. And in many cases, this has been itself inflicted by restricted zoning policies. You've got municipalities that are very well-intentioned and for the most part, but short-staffed, so not enough applications being approved. You know, we did a project 10 years ago and you know, the price we achieved was higher than what we thought. Well, that just led to land values going up in the area. And the reason why the price was higher is because other projects hadn't been approved, right? So a lot of this is self-inflicted. We're all coming together. The I don't, the affordability thing in Vancouver, I think, is always going to be a challenge. But we have to keep the, the growth limited to hopefully under inflation because it's it's causing a divide between those who own versus those who rent, older, younger. So um, we need to make significant changes. And we're starting to see it. I, I feel... Like everything is opportunity cost. When you drive down a street and you see government-owned land, whether it's Hastings with the P&E, and that's a real button for me. i, I got to watch what I say. <laughs> but we're making a choice as a society to have empty parking lots that sit there for 11 months. Or you could have housing there. Maybe it's six stories rental, below market rental, there are so many opportunities abound if we start looking around within the region to tackle this. And, you know, people are going to continue to want to come here. It's one of the best places in the world. So we're behind the eight ball now. How, what steps can we take to be not only dealing with today's crisis, but planning for tomorrow? And I think there has been a lack of coordination in the past. I'm totally pro-immigration, but you got to have to have housing for people. And I do, I'm always an optimist. I do feel things are getting better mm-hmm. you know right now there's there's people are coming together on this issue do you think what you've seen your experimentation to a certain degree uh, uh you know premier eb was saying that they've got to basically take chances uh, in regards to some of this stuff and the legislation that they introduced in many ways i look at conservative leader and uh, pierre polyev and ndp premier david eb different parts of the political spectrum but yeah. both of them when i listen to them and they're sitting exactly where you've been sitting like, and these guys actually want to work around City Hall to a certain degree. Yeah. They think there's a bottleneck there. And I don't want to blame City Hall for all of it. You know, federal government got out of the rental business a long time ago as well. But do you actually see us heading in the right direction yeah. now, finally? Yeah, I, I, um, no, no, I don't, I'll try my best not to get uh, political, but for sure there's uh, one project that was delayed for many years. It was in a, in a city here in uh, Metro Vancouver. Right, there, our site is right on transit. Right, the station is right there, but the local council said no. I'm like, how do you have the right to do that when senior levels of government have put all this money in for transit? I said at the time, it's going to take senior level of government, probably the province, to sort of say, dictate this is what's going to happen. So unfortunately, it's come to the point where, you know, relatively drastic action is having to be taken. And because things festered for so long, and there's and maybe there's an overreaction, we'll see. But it's the extent of the crisis, I think, is leading to um, decisions like this that need to be made. And, you know, maybe they're going too far. I don't know. Time will tell. But at least there's action and commitment to making change. So I encourage that. Whomever's in, in power, these are public policy issues that matter to everyone. And affordability is a problem for the citizens here, but it's a problem for economic growth. How do you attract people to come here and build your economy when it's not affordable? Or if you're at a university is trying to attract a professor, they can't. It's a tax 
on everybody in the region. It hurts. I don't know anyone who benefits from this. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully we can sort of break the back of it. Um, one of the things uh, I know your organization is very proud of is is uh, being involved with the community. Uh, I know you do a tremendous amount of work with the charities. I think your organization has given out about $135 million to charities. Um, and you're also involved in making sure you're uh, helping uh, and you're mentoring young people. And you have a, a luminaries, a BD Luminary uh, program. Walk me through that. Yes, yeah, so, uh, we're really proud of BD Luminaries. It's a scholarship program we announced uh, actually in this room on my 50th birthday a little over five years ago. And since that time, we've grown. We have 600 students in the program that, um, uh, that we're helping you know, get through university and trades and the like. Um, we have a single parents uh, program. We're going to be announcing uh, a trades program upcoming, but it's, the scholarship is well beyond just financial support. We have mentors for the students. We have counselors on staff, wraparound support. So our retention rate, I think, is 97, 98%. Hmm. Our goal is to make it the best scholarship program in the country. We're really proud of it. Continuing to evolve it. Martina Mekova is our executive director. She and her team have done a phenomenal job. I'm really proud of it. It's um, you know, to have success as a company, we have responsibility to give back to the community. And when I was turning 50, I thought, I want to do something around education. Our experience at SFU is so positive and helping students, giving these, these are students who, in many cases, wouldn't get to go to school. They've all faced adversity, mainly financial, and a lot of them are A minus, B plus students. They're not A, A plus students. There's always scholarships for them. People, students that otherwise might not get to go. And we're really thrilled with how it's gone. And we've got some big ideas on how to continue to invest in that going forward. What drives you every morning? That's part of it. Um, you know, we've been so fortunate. We've had great success, but contributing back to the community uh, and, and having a tangible impact on other people's lives is a, a massive driver for me. I'm really, it just, it fuels me. And I'm looking ahead going, wow, we've done some really good things so far, but I really think we're just scratching the surface. We can do some massive stuff. We're having internal discussions now. What's the next big thing, whether that's scaling up luminaries or is that, you know, another sort of philanthropic endeavor. So it's a huge driver, but I'm also motivated by our people. We have incredible people in our company. I go to work, they're energized. I get energy from them. I hopefully give energy back to them going to, to, to sites, whether it's industrial, uh, we're across Canada now, we're doing a lot in Toronto, we're doing some work in Vegas. Uh, residentially, our Fraser Mills project in Coquitlam just launched. We have 5,500 5, units we'll be building over the next 15 to 20 years. So that's work. Back to my comment about my dad, work thinking about our team and all the, the, the incredible things they're going to get to do over the years to come and creating and having a tangible impact on the landscape. Those things all motivate me, but work going on site and seeing all sorts of activity and knowing that you know i'm a part of that it makes me feel really proud and it drives me forward every day thanks for your time today i really appreciate it thank you thanks for listening to the jazz joe hall show podcast don't forget to subscribe to the show on apple or google podcasts spotify or wherever you get your podcasts You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at JazzJoeHallBC. Talk to you next time.